You are listening to the Reality Steve Podcast with your host, Reality Steve. He's got all the latest info and behind-the-scenes juice on Tasha's season of The Bachelorette and interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. Now, here's Reality Steve. What's up, everybody? Welcome to podcast number 214. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Excellent show for you today, I think. We are joined by Emily O'Brien. She was on Ben Flanick's season. We're not talking any Bachelor stuff today. I'm not talking about her season on Ben Flanick or her season with Ben Flanick. We're not talking about anything Bachelor-related. This is strictly virus and vaccine talk because she is an epidemiologist at Duke University. She was on in April when we were in the beginning stages of COVID and a lot of stuff she said ended up coming true. If you want to go check that out, go ahead. But um, we're having her on today and we're talking virus and vaccine and all the questions that I can gather from the internet that other people I'm hearing are asking about the vaccine, questions that I have about it, clarifications of misinformation that's happening on the internet. Um, she knows what she's talking about. So it's a really good listen. Uh, I hope you stick out, stick it out and uh, listen to this whole podcast. because It's very, very interesting. So before we get started, just briefly um, going over what I wrote earlier today uh, in the, in the, in my finale thoughts and just this season overall, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's definitely different. Like I said, I just don't think I'm going to be able to get episode-by-episode episode spoilers for you uh, as long as they're at a one-location one filming, like they did for Claire and Tasha's season, like they did for Matt's season, like they most likely will for the next Bachelorette season, which begins filming in March. I do my best, but stuff comes way more sporadically now. And yeah, there's going to be stuff that I'm not going to get till up to the very end of the season. And there might be things that end up changing from when I originally post them. I hope they don't, uh, but it's just uh, it's just way more difficult. And without getting into details or getting into sources and stuff like that, just trust me. I mean, like, you know, before this season, when I put out, hey, Brendan leaves at final four or final three. Don't know which one. He ends up leaving at three. Hey, Ben and... Uh, Zach are your final two and she chose Zach like those ended up being right but it was just this the circular way we went about going to get there because when Ben got eliminated at four I'm like oh shit I was wrong about that but then find out you know later on oh wait he does come back and he is final two because he comes back at final three and then makes it to final two like it's just just a crazy messy season it's why I use the word messy because there was a lot of messiness to the season there's no uh, wasn't attacking anybody. It wasn't a thing against Tasha or anything like that. It was just like, hey, the season was messy. Gave you the spoilers. I had spoilers that were right, but the details around it weren't. So that just made everything just crazy and messy. And it's like that's why I said, like, just go home, Tasha. Season, you're drunk. Like, um, it wasn't an insult to Tasha. Like, come on, people, let's get over it. I wasn't attacking her personally. I was attacking the season. It was just craziness. It's the first season we've had that was filmed in one location. No, no pictures got out. No spoilers got out. Nothing. You know, I mean, you can. The funny thing is, like, you can attack me all you want for, oh, you were wrong about this and you were wrong about this, and yeah, I w- absolutely was wrong about some things this season. But also look at the other thing. Tasha's season ended filming September first. Her finale aired December twenty second. That's three and a half months that passed, 
and there are, what, 330 million people in the United States? Not one of them told you anything over the course of three and a half months that said, no, Steve, Reality Steve is wrong. This is what happened. Boom, 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 boom. This, 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 and this. Nobody reported anything. Like, you had nowhere else to go. Nobody else reported a thing about this season. Yes, I gave it to you late, but at least I got it to you. You know, you got your stuff. And that's my job. That's what I try to do is get you as much information as I can. I just think it's it's coming way more sporadically now. And it's coming a little bit later. And But you're getting it, you know. Uh, I, I just, but as I wrote today, you just, I'm, I'm never, ever, 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 ever. Uh, gonna satisfy everybody. It's just it's it's impossible now, and I and I've come to realize that. But yeah, I mean, told you before the episode happened last night. Oh yeah, this uh, on Twitter yesterday. Here's what happens with Ben. He does arrive back. Um, he comes to the rose ceremony. She eliminates Ivan, and Ben and Zach are your final two, which was what originally was reported. The way to get there was wrong because I didn't know that Ben left at four. But you see what I'm saying? Like just. And then during the episode last night, literally one hour into the episode, you know, I get it confirmed, even though I wrote yesterday, like, hey, I'd be shocked if Zach and Tasha aren't engaged at the end of this thing and, and not still together today. And then I confirmed it during the episode. It's just I don't think that's going to be I, I will say this. I don't think that's going to be the case for Matt's season. I don't think you're going to find out the winner um, in March on the I think looking at the calendar, I think his. Assuming they have a one-night finale, I think the finale for Matt's season will be, uh, let's see here, March 15th. If they do a two-night finale, it'll be on the 16th. But, yeah, I mean, that's what we're looking at for Matt's season. I don't think it's going to be that long to get the the Final Four breakdown. But um, in terms of the episode-by-episode spoilers, no, I'm not going to have that for Matt's season. I'm going to find stuff out sporadically. I'll let you know when I find out, but it's probably going to be the same thing. The day of the episode... I'll just, uh, you know, relay to you what uh, what I know happens in the episode and just kind of put it out there like that. So um, thank you all for a great season. It's been fun. Been trying at times, but still uh, been fun. The traffic was there. You guys are all coming back. And that's that's the main thing. Um, I just I just wish people would stop focusing and harping on every single little thing um, that it, that is wrong when it, if if honestly, if you really, really, really made a list of all the things that I told you about that were right this season, that w- that list is much, much longer than the things that were wrong. But I, I guess some people just have it out and um, absolutely will not just it's I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it in the emails. I'm seeing it in the social media. And, um, you know, what can you do at this point? But uh Great interview with Emily O'Brien for episode number 214. You're going to love it, so uh, please listen to this whole thing. Really good talk with uh, Emily O'Brien. So here we go, episode number 214. Okay, let's bring her in. A lot of you have been asking about her since we had her on in April. Yes, it is Emily O'Brien. She was on Ben Flanick's season. We don't need to talk about that again if you really want to hear her thoughts on that season. You can go back and listen to April's podcast. Um, I'm bringing her on again because she's an epidemiologist at Duke University. And we're going to talk about the virus and the vaccine uh, because that is probably the most important thing going on in this world right now. Emily, thank you so much uh, for joining me and coming on again. Yes, thank you for having me. I um, I really wanted to go back and 
you know, for people that did listen in April, obviously so much we've learned a lot more uh, since April when we had you on and we talked about it. A lot of the stuff you said ended up being true. Um, but going from that first podcast, seemingly, I think one of the biggest things to start out with was a lot of the people back in March and April and May were concerned that COVID could be passed from person to person through, you know, touching groceries, touching tables, uh, handshaking, uh, touching utensils at a restaurant, stuff like that. We've come to find out in the last six or seven months, that's not necessarily the case. I don't think a lot of cases maybe stemmed from that, and it's more of an airborne disease. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, this has been true with a lot of things with COVID that we've sort of learned as we've gone and collected more data and sort of checked our initial assumptions. So um, I, I like this term for what we were dealing with back in March and April. Is There's a mathematician at Princeton who coined this. It, he called it the fomite freakout. Um, and so like that's where you heard about people who were disinfecting everything, worried about their mail, um, and really, you know, that was that was driven by, you know, a good sort of scientific theory, which is true for many respiratory viruses, which is that they can spread through surfaces in addition to being able to spread through droplets or aerosols. Um, and there were some early lab studies that showed that SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID, can live on surfaces for a while. But we know that, of course, the real world is often different from a controlled lab environment. So everyone was um, worried about surface spread, but also eager to see more data um, to really confirm or refute this idea that 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 was a major cause of transmission. And so there are really um, two studies that came out that um, changed the way that we thought about this. One was from Italy and one was from Israel. And in these studies, they went in and sent in a team of scientists, swabbed surfaces in COVID-19 isolation wards at hospitals. So these are places that you'd expect there to be a lot of virus. And so what was interesting is that they found similar conclusions, which is there was a lot of virus on surfaces in the rooms, but they were not able to culture, culture the virus in tissue. So, you know, that that's sort of the distinction that we're talking about here, that it might look like a virus can do well in an ideal setting, but it may be that while it's present on surfaces, it's not able to infect people um, at the same rate that it can when it's it's spread through aerosols or droplets. Um, and so, like, when we think about surfaces, there are just a ton of things that would really have to happen perfectly for um, the virus to infect you from, you know, touching something. So like you think about the first step, which is that you have to have a large amount of it that's sprayed onto the surface through somebody who's infected. And then, you know, the virus has to survive. There can't be, um, you know, temperature or light or humidity conditions that would cause it to degrade. It has to stay on the surface long enough for you to pick it up and then become infected. Um, there's also evidence that the virus that causes COVID doesn't do well on clothing or skin. So that makes it harder. And then, um, you know, it has to get into your body. And so we have these natural mucosal defenses that kind of guard us from uh, foreign pathogens. And it, once it, you know, once it gets to those, it has to get through those as well. And so th those are all sort of reasons why um, it's been um, it, it, there haven't been many cases, um, none really on sort of the outbreak level that I'm aware of, where um, people have gotten COVID from um, from surfaces. I mean, would you say it was the biggest, I, I guess, misconception about the virus that we know now from back in April or May? Or is there is there been another one that's been totally, 
not totally debunked, but something that we thought was a big player back in the early stages and now really isn't? I mean, so that's definitely a big one. The other one is also related to transmission, and I wouldn't say it's a a debunking, um, but it's definitely an evolution in the way that we thought about things. And that is this droplet versus airborne transmission. And this is still very much an active area of research and an active area of discussion in the scientific community. Um, but the the short the short answer is, you know, for this, um, most of the guidance, most of the public health guidance has been based on the assumption that the majority of transmission is happening through droplets. So remember, droplets are these large saliva and mucus particles, I hope you're not eating lunch, um, that are heavy and fall to the ground, you know, as soon as they're expelled. And so um, they're bigger than what we think of as aerosols, which are solid or liquid particles that are really tiny and light and sort of become suspended in the air after they're expelled. So like the example that we give with this one is cigarette smoke. Um, And so at the beginning, you know, everything that um, we were really saying about how to reduce transmission was was really um, sort of focused on this idea that droplets were the, the main way that it spreads. Um, masks, for sure, stop droplets from um, potentially infecting other people. Um, the six feet of distance is completely um, based on how far droplets can travel once they're expelled. But people started asking questions about um, aerosols. You know, is this is this a way that um, that the virus can spread? And and it seems that indeed it is. Um, so the reason that this becomes important is that it challenges some of the, um, some of the assumptions about how to be completely safe. So you can imagine if you're indoors and you're six feet apart and you're, everyone's wearing a mask, um, you're going to have a reduced risk of transmission from droplets, but depending on the mask that you're wearing and depending on the ventilation and depending on how many people are in the room and if people are talking loudly, singing, et cetera, you might have more of a problem with aerosol transmission than you think. So even though um, it's it's it seems to be the case that most of the spread is through um, you know people interacting with each other with no masks and in close contact, um, airborne transmission is important as well. And um, this is why you know we say that not all indoor spaces are the same. So like for me personally. I would be much more nervous going into a tiny coffee shop or a bar with lots of other people, even if everybody had masks on, than I would going into a Costco where it's a big open space, ventilation is better, people are more spread apart, et cetera. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. Now here we are in December, looking back on April and May and the early stages of this. Um, how do you think... Or do you think we did a good job as a country of containing this or adhering to what we were told? Would would just a two-week shutdown or maybe a month shutdown of the whole country in April um, could have cured or could have curved a lot of this? But then you look at it as a country, could we have even afforded to do that? And can you realistically expect 330 million people to do that. Like looking back on it now, is there something we could have done quicker uh, as a country or is it just, look, we were learning as we went. We, we, we passed on what we knew at the time and we did what we could. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think kind of the hardest question that we've been grappling with for the past nine months. Um, And I think the problem is that there's, there's almost no good middle ground with this, with this pandemic. Um, 
I think policymakers have really sort of been between a rock and a hard place. I would not want to be one of them and have had this job over the past year trying to make these decisions. Obviously, you know, there, I think we even talked about this a little bit back in April. There, There is this spectrum of risk with opening up completely, which everyone knows is not a good idea. Um, and then, you know, trying to stamp this thing out with super harsh lockdowns. And those have obvious costs. People have brought up mental health. Um substance abuse, uh, domestic violence, et cetera. So, and, and those are all in addition to the obvious, you know, economic costs. Um, so there, there's really no, like no one decision that could um, make everyone happy, prevent, um, you know, economic hardship, prevent um, declines in mental well-being, and, um, and reduce infection. So every country in the world has had to sort of make this decision of, of you know, what are their values and how do they, how do they honor those values in, in the policies that they, they implement. Um, I mean, like you said, even if we had done a complete shutdown for a, large, a longer um, period of time than we did, there's no guarantee that people would even really listen. And of course, there are people who still have to go to work to keep um, the country running, healthcare workers, first responders, um, people in food production, et cetera. Um, and so, that, you know, there, there would be probably very few ways that we could, could, could have gotten things down to a, a low level of transmission um, without a whole lot of sacrifice. Um, I, I will say, you know, my general perspective on this, and there's still, unfortunately, time left in this pandemic. I mean, right now, um, I think we've done a pretty terrible job in our the way that we've handled this as as a country. I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of variation in individuals and communities, and I don't want to downplay the sacrifices that some people have made. Um, you know, I've seen on Twitter healthcare workers who've lived away from their kids for months on end because they don't want to risk infecting them. Um, but then, you know, you also see stories of others who have been unwilling to give up things that are, I think, objectively unnecessary, like nights out at a bar or indoor weddings. Um, there was a particularly infuriating um, piece in, um, I think it was Texas Monthly. I'm not sure if you saw this. And I think it was Texas wedding photographers had seen some shit. And it was basically like stories of bad behavior on um, the part of bridal parties and exposing wedding photographers who are really just trying to make a living to, um, you know, potential infection because they didn't want to um, make adjustments to how they were going to do weddings. They didn't want to cancel. They didn't want to postpone. They just wanted things to go on as normal. And that that kind of behavior, I think, is is really just sad um, and shows a lack of respect for for other people. Um I mean, I guess that, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on um, the low death rate when, especially on, you know, the side of people who say we're making too big of a, a deal of, uh, about this and, and it's really, you know, not much worse than flu. I mean, this is hard to understand from a scientific perspective, having seen the data. Um, you know, one piece of this is that the death rate really is a lot higher in older people. And there are many of them that are, are dying and have serious um, damage from COVID if they if they do survive and and I would assume that you know we all have people um, in our lives who we care about who are older and it, it's strange to see sort of the disregard when people talk about the the low death rate overall because it it isn't really that low in in those groups um, and then you know on the other side we, we have we've talked about health systems and th this is really kind of the angle that I come at this from since this is an area of my research. Um, but the health systems are just getting crushed by by COVID. And of course, it varies by geography. But 
um, things can get bad really, really quickly. Like, you know, Southern California is a disaster right now. They have no ICU beds available. They've talked about having to ration care. And so, you know, if you're someone who may not really worry that much about your own personal risk um, and don't think it's that serious for you, there's still like a health system consideration that God forbid something should happen to you, like a car accident, that if you need medical care, that may, might not be available to you because the health system is overwhelmed by the number of people with COVID. So it's, it's hard to understand. Um, and I, I mean, it's been a little depressing to see. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's COVID fatigue and, and people don't want to give up seeing their loved ones, but um the message that I, I wish would sort of sink in is that it's not forever. And, you know, what we're giving up um, is really just not that much, um, especially if you can, you know, stay at home and self-isolate and um, wait to get married until next year or wait to go to a bar until next year. It, it d- just doesn't seem to be that big of a sacrifice to me. And, and I think at this point in time, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel because the vaccines are now available which we'll get to momentarily. Um, I still want to talk about the virus a little bit in general and and going back to those early days of of, of March and April and May. And even I think in the summer, you know, it was like, wow, we're having 20, 25,000 positive tests a day. And now we're sitting here, we're basically every single day, we're setting a new record for how many positive cases of COVID we're getting, 200,000, 250,000 a day, which back in June, if you were to have told somebody back in June, hey, and hey, you think it's bad now, it's going to be 10 times worse in December, which some scientists were saying, like, look, it's just going to get mm-hmm. bad in the winter. Now, is the amount of COVID positive tests that we're getting now, the 200,000 to 250,000 a day that we seem to be recording, is that more so because we clearly test way more now than we do back when it first started, or is it because of what they alluded to it's a weather thing and people are staying inside more because it's colder outside or is it a combo of both? Yeah. So great question. I mean, the question is really like, is this, are we seeing like actually more cases than we had or like, were we just not able to, to get all the cases tested back in the spring? And so like, you know, in, in some ways, you know, we, we know that testing resources were, were lower in the spring. So that, that is a contributor. Um, but you know, the important thing to look at is something that we call test positivity. And so like, this is a really key question, um, basic concept, um, that we, um, that we're always keeping an eye on when we look at the total case numbers. And so, um, test positivity is just a super straightforward percent. It's, um, you know, we take the total, um, number of tests that we do, um, in the denominator, and then the numerator is the test that come back positive. So it's just, you know, the number of positives over the total number of tests that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that this is important is that when that number is too high, so when test positivity is too high, it generally means that the only people who are we're really seeing coming in for testing are people who are arriving at the ER or urgent care because they think that they might be sick. And so um, if this happens, we know that we're probably missing a lot of cases. Um, and the threshold that we generally set is above 5%. Um, if we see low test positivity, usually that means that our surveillance capacity is good. We're testing um, broadly and we can identify cases really quickly and hopefully get those people to quarantine and do contact tracing and, and reduce chances of outbreaks. Um, 
so like a good example right now is Tennessee. This is a state, um, unfortunately, that has the highest number of new cases per capita out of anywhere in the U.S. right now. Um, and so if you thought that all of these cases, these new cases were due to a huge uptick in testing and sort of picking up everything that's out there, we'd expect to see a pretty low positivity rate because we'd be administering tests so broadly that we'd have a lot of people who were um, COVID negative who would be getting tested too. Um, but the test positivity rate in Tennessee is actually 17%. So this is obviously much higher than that threshold of 5% that we're looking for. Mm. Um, and when you have a, a, you know, a test positivity rate of 17%, we know that there's a lot of community transmission and there are probably a lot of cases that we're not detecting. So the numbers are probably even worse than we think there. So that would be the example I would point to of like a state that's in bad shape. Um, not only do they have a ton of cases per capita, they actually have a pretty high test positivity rate, which means things are even worse than we think. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I've, I've heard that phrase thrown out a lot recently, test positivity. And yeah, I mean, our numbers now seem like, oh my gosh, it's getting worse and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I, I, I kind of want to transition before we get into the vaccine about mask talk, because that's obviously been such a huge thing in this in this world for the last six months it turned into a a political issue you know people really who were anti-mask really went went after Fauci kind of early because Fauci in a 60 minutes interview said masks we don't we don't all need to be wearing masks and then a couple months later said he did but what he when he said we all don't need to be wearing masks he was actually saying it because he was telling people don't go buy up all the masks because we are at a shortage of them right now and frontline workers need them. But people took that as, oh, we don't all need to be wearing masks. That was clarified. So clearly now it's become very important. Almost every state, I think, is implementing, look, you can't go anywhere without putting your mask on. But there are others out there that still don't think they need to wear a mask. What do you say to someone like that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say um, I understand the confusion, certainly at least early on. Um, and again, it's, it's part, of, part of the challenge with the pandemic is that, especially with this virus, this new virus, we didn't know a whole lot um, when we started and we learned as, you know, as we've gone. And, and that is unfortunately just the way that science works. Um, but it also means that sometimes people start to question recommendations if they're updated. So I, I would try to encourage people to be patient and, and to recognize that updating is a good thing and that we're um, you know at a place now where we have a lot more information um, than we did in the spring. And right now, the information points to there really just being no question about the effectiveness of, of masks. They, they are effective. Um, of course, this, this is a slightly more complex question than just yes or no, since there are lots of different masks and they're worn in different environments. Um, normally, you know, we'd want to set up a randomized trial and see um, which masks work best for which people in what environments, but we just, we don't have time to do that in a pandemic. And so we have um, observational data that, that we look at that's, you know, high quality and that we can sort of get a sense for how things, um, you know, how things work in the real world. Um, one of the studies that's been most convincing to me is from uh, Missouri. I don't know if you've heard of the the hairstylist study um, from yes. a few months ago. Um, so, th- so this was a cool one. I mean, they so is, we call it a case report since it's really just you know one kind of um, uh, potential outbreak uh, environment. But 
um, so these were two hairstylists in Missouri who, who were both positive for COVID. And both of them went to work. They wore, um, I think it was cotton or surgical masks. It wasn't an N95. Um, and they spread the virus to people in their households, but nobody who um, came in and received hairstyling services was infected. So um, the caveat with this one is that I think about half of people declined free tests. So, you know, it's possible that some of them, some of those people were infected, but in general, it's, it's not like, um, you know, there, it was this huge outbreak um, and, and the masks, you know, were obviously a, a key component of that, given that, you know, the, at home, um, these people were um, able to infect their, their household members. So that's, that's one sort of very small scale case study. And then there are other larger scale studies. Um, there's one that looked at 200 countries um, and showed a direct connection between um, weekly increases in per capita mortality um, and mask use. So, so mortality is four times lower in places where masks were the norm or were recommended by government. Um, and so I, I think it's, you know, it's based on the available evidence that we have and, um, you know, within the constraints of this pandemic and not being able to do super long, um, really detailed clinical trials on this question, since we need to protect people, um, the, the ultimate answer is, you know, mass work, um, they're, they're certainly not perfect. Um, distance is, is probably better, um, but they're just, you know, one tool that we have to try to reduce transmission. And they're essentially free and easy and um, I think should be worn without really much resistance. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of funny um, to me uh, after nine months of this, whatever it is, eight months, nine months of this, to kind of look at everything. And look, I understand that people just, for whatever reason, just have their issues with, oh, I don't want to wear a mask. The government is making me do this. I don't infringe on my freedom, whatever. You know, look, I'm just saying it's it's such a small thing to do. Um, to where I, I'm almost at a point now where I feel weird not wearing a mask. Like obviously when I'm sitting at home and I'm, and I live by myself, I don't have to wear one, but I, every time I go out, it, 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 it's on. And I, I'm almost to a point where I, I'm probably one of the few in the world that I'm going to think it's really weird when we get to a day where we're not wearing masks again. Like I'm, I'm so used to it. It's not a big, I don't even think twice about putting it on like, uh, I don't complain and moan and bitch about having a mask on. It's just, hey, it's like this is what you need to do. And look, I I, I get it. there are people out there that are more annoyed by masks than I am. I, you know, I don't really get it. I don't really understand. I I guess I don't get it. I don't understand why you're so annoyed by a mask. Um, but I also think that it's just like look at you know looking at it now, it's just part of life now. And I guess when we look back on this ten twenty years from now, I'll be like, oh yeah, that that year period where I basically had to wear a mask everywhere I went kind of weird. But um, yeah, now that we're in the middle of it, I feel so weird being out and never having a mask on. Cause I always have it on. It's just a very natural thing for me. And I almost think I'm going to miss it when, it, when it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a security blanket, right? Yeah. It's like my own, it's my own binky. <laughs> saw my face well, I, don't any, I don't think anyone would be upset at you if you wore it after the yeah after the yeah i mean yeah i mean, just, i just look you know you hear all the time like before before covid ever started like um a dentist doctors wear surgical masks all day long and nothing ever happened to their health like for for years and years and years on end 
Because then when people were like, oh, my God, why do I have to wear a mask for an hour? Or why do I have to wear a mask to go into Target? It's like a doctor wears one eight hours a day. Like, what what are you bitching about? Like, how hard is it to put on a mask for 10 minutes while you go shopping? You know, and thinking that it was going to affect your health in some way, shape or form when people on the front line have been wearing masks at work for years, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's maybe less about actual mask wearing and more about what it represents yeah. and that's you know a whole other podcast probably with a political scientist <laughs> that would be better suited but um you know there there are obviously connections to uh, opinions about larger policy decisions that have nothing to do with masks but have um pe- that people have strong feelings about like you know curfews and um limits on who can be in a business etc so i i i don't i i think it's yeah the mask wearing is just one small piece of it but it certainly has become a symbol which is really sad because it's probably the easiest part of everything that we're doing all right let's move on to vaccines um because this is this is the positive part of the of the podcast i've got i've got a lot of questions i've read a lot of stuff online about the vaccines i know a lot of people out there have questions about the vaccines because we know that there's probably a good percentage of this country that will not take it for whatever reason, whether it be a, a religious thing, whether it be a political thing. Um, we know that there's not going to be everybody. 330 million people in the U.S. are all not going to be vaccinated. However, with that said, um, first questions about the vaccine. I don't even know if there's an answer to this one, but I'll ask it anyway. How long... Do we know yet how long this vaccine is expected to last? Is this something that is going to be the the COVID vaccine is going to be a seasonal vaccine that we have to get kind of like the flu shot? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I, I think the consensus right now, and, and you're right, we don't know for sure. Um, we'll, we'll see as we gather data from people who are enrolled in trials and in, in people who um, are vaccinated and then participate in research um, to sort of look at long-term outcomes. Um, so the consensus is that we, right now, most scientists do not think that this will be a lifelong vaccine against COVID. Um, there are definitely some promising signs of what we call durability. So the vaccine, you know, lasting more than a couple of months, for example, um, in the Moderna trial, for example, which is one of the vaccine manufacturers, one of the vaccines that is currently um approved under emergency use authorization, Um, they looked at antibody levels three months after the second dose and saw that those levels were quite high. So that's promising for durability, but still just like an early sign, not, you know, a long-term conclusion. Um, You know, if the other consideration is that we don't quite have an understanding of, um, you know, how quickly COVID will um, will mutate, or SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID will mutate. Um, if it were mutating very quickly, um, which it doesn't seem to be mutating very quickly right now, um, although there are some um, interesting data coming out of um, London about uh, a new mutation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But overall, it seems to be mutating more slowly than the flu. And um, if that were not the case, we'd be more concerned about it not being effective, that the vaccine not being effective against a, a future strain. And so, um, you know, the, the, there are a number of authorities who've spoken about this. One is Paul Offit, who directs the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, really an authority on sort of all things uh, COVID and definitely vaccine related. Um, he has said that his best guess for how long uh, these vaccines will last is a couple of years. 
And so, um, you know, if SARS-CoV-2 was still around by then and it's um, mutated so that it can escape um, detection by our immune system, um, at that point, uh, we would need to have a vaccine that would um, generate a res- an immune response that, that would, um, you know, target the, uh, the new strain. But, but we're, um, the best guess is that we're years away from that. Okay. Um, whatever vaccine that we have out there right now, Moderna and Pfizer are the two that are currently being administered to people. Um, explain the two shot process. What are people expected to feel after one shot? The second shot, I think for one of those vaccines is three weeks later. The, the other one is four weeks later. Um, is there a concern among doctors that people are only going to get one shot and not get the second shot? Um, why the need for the second shot? Just explain why this is a two-shot vaccine. Yeah, so the, really the first the first shot um, is kind of an introduction to the virus. I mean, now I'll, I, I think it's very important to recognize that this um, set, uh, the, these two vaccines that are currently available um, are not inactivated virus or live virus. Um, they're uh, a relatively new platform um, that uses mRNA to teach your cells how to make a piece of what's called the spike protein. So you've heard about the, the spike protein. This is something that's found on the surface of SARS-CoV-2. Yes. Um, yes. And, and once our, our bodies sort of make this protein, our immune systems recognize that it's an outsider and build an immune response to it, um, which is similar to what happens if you're actually infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so that's sort of the way that this works, which is, um, you know, essentially the the um, conclusion is that obviously you cannot be infected with COVID with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and get COVID from the vaccine. So that's very important to recognize. Um, so, you know, when we when we do the first shot, your body's exposed to this sort of new virus, even though it's really, um, you know, spike protein that's um, uh, created as a result of mRNA. Um, you, your body's starting in it's really starting from scratch. And so um, the first shot helps your body sort of recognize the virus and it gets your immune system ready. And the second shot strengthens this immune response and helps to produce more of the memory cells that help to combat the virus should you encounter it in real life. Um, So you you do get some protection from the first shot, um, but much better protection if you add on that second shot. And so um, I guess the, the question about whether people you know, whether people are concerned about um, folks not coming back and getting a second shot. Uh, yes, if they just get the first shot, they'll have some protection, but they won't be as protected as they would if they got the second. So there are some reminder cards and other ways that um, health systems in particular are setting up uh, notifications to let people know it's time to come in for your second shot. Um, but we want to, we want people to be as protected as possible. And for these two new vaccines, um, two shots are really required to get there. So you kind of said a lot of stuff there. Um, I want to almost put it in layman's terms of something that I read, and I want to run this by you and let me know if this is kind of how you see it. Um, I read something. I wish I could pull it up. I don't actually have it with me, but I thought basically someone described it as the vaccine is like an email being sent to your body, notifying it on what the COVID virus is, what to expect if it encounters it, and and how to react once it does. Like, hey, Mr. Body, there's a virus out there. If you come in contact with it, here's what you need to do to handle it. Is that a, a, a simpler form of what you just said? Yes, 
that is almost exactly what's happening. It's the email sort of being the messenger RNA um, that is instructing your body what to do if it comes in contact with the real virus. That's a good analogy. So it's not the, that's why when you say people are not injecting, this vaccination is not injecting COVID into you. So it's COVID fighting COVID. It's, hey, if you ever get COVID, here's what you're telling your body. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you react to it. That's exactly right. Gotcha. Now, from from what I've read, and I'm not a doctor, um, clearly I'm only, you know, as good as what I'm reading on the internet. So I want to go to you to, to kind of fill me in on if what I'm reading is correct. From what I have read, the vast majority of side effects from vaccines happen very soon after vaccination. So they would have been found in these clinical trials that have been done before Moderna and Pfizer put their vaccines out for distribution. So most happen within even hours of getting the vaccine. They said more rare up to six weeks and at most up to six months, which is why I think people, some people have a concern like, oh, you're injecting COVID into me. You're giving me the vaccine to fight off uh, it if I were to ever encounter it. But that's basically, that's not what's happening with these shots, correct? With this vaccine. That's right. You cannot get COVID from the two vaccines that are, are currently available under EUA. Okay. And if there are to be side effects, when these trials were done over the last six to eight months, you know, um, I was reading that those side effects happened rather quickly. And when they did the side effects for all these people that did take the trial and did put their uh, did put themselves out there to so we could get an update on do these vaccines work. Very few ended up with side effects, if I'm reading that correctly. Right. Right. So part of, um, you know, part of the concern and it's, it's actually, you know, a, certainly a, a relevant scientific concern, too, is that when people go to enroll in clinical trials, there's an initial screening process that um, ensures that the people who are enrolled in the trials are, you know, a, a pretty um, appropriate pop- population to study new therapies and, and new vaccines. And so we, you know, we want that population to reflect people who are ultimately going to receive the vaccine, but we wouldn't want to put people, for example, who had a severe allergic reaction to another vaccine in the past in those trials because it would be unethical knowing that they're, you know, at high risk for another another bad outcome. And so that's sort of the balance that, that um, we, we try to, create as as scientists as we're setting up these trials. So when when a vaccine is approved under EUA for a specified population, there is an acknowledgement that the real world population, so to speak, is likely going to be broader than the population that has been studied in clinical trials. So one example is um, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So not not included in either of the the trials for the vaccines that are currently available. Um, And so what's happening is that um, many systems are setting up a shared, what they're calling a shared decision-making process for those women. It really is, you know, a a personal decision. How high is your risk of COVID? Are you able to self-isolate? 
um, what would um, your risk of a severe outcome be if you were to be infected with with COVID? And so it's it's not a sort of one size fits all approach, and it's based on the limited amount of data. So it it can be um, you know certainly challenging. But one of the reasons that um, the the EUA applications that Pfizer and Moderna put in um, had uh, sections on post EUA surveillance is that we still want to make sure that we didn't miss anything in those in those early trials, right? So like if, um, you know, there's something that happens in a small segment of the population um, two years out, that's something that we would want to know. There's pretty good confidence that um, most of the potential bad outcomes that like you said, that that could happen, happen early on, and that we have pr pretty good data um, to, you know, to ensure that um, those are happening at a relatively low rate. Um, but the the FDA still, um, I think, you know, rightly, obviously, wants to ensure that, you know, over the long term, that things still still look good and, and that the safety profile is is still favorable. And, and the best guess right now is that it will be, but we, we just need data and time to make sure that that's the case. Do we know if there's a bigger difference between Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine? Um, is one better than the other? How are we going to convince people that they should take one over the other? Or is it safe to say, like, hey, these two are what you're getting by these two vaccines, no matter which one you get, one is not better than the other. They're both doing the same exact thing. Yeah, so they the trial data from phase three showed remarkably similar effectiveness. So one was 94.5% effective, one was 95% effective. Um, the, the platform, as I mentioned with mRNA uh, as sort of the, the key driver of this um, uh, spike protein creation and then the immune response, um, that, that is the same between the two. Um, the, the difference in administration is that um, the second dose for the Pfizer vaccine comes 21 days after the first dose, and for Moderna, it's 28 days. And so really almost identical in, in terms of the, you know, the big um, sort of major features um, and, and in terms of effectiveness. So, you know, the chances that any one of us um, will get to pick one of them are really slim to none at this point. Um, that might be the case in the future, but I, I think right now it's just if you have the opportunity to take one of them, you should. Do you know when you will be able to get one? Yeah, so there are a number of tools. New York Times has a good one where you input some basic information about yourself and you um, identify as a frontline worker and say, you know, when you're when you're born, um, if you have any, um, you know, serious medical conditions, and then it sort of spits out uh, an estimate with a has a nice image actually of a, a line of people and you can see where you where you fall. I think I'm I think it told me I did a few weeks ago. I'm pretty sure I have 290 million people ahead of me. So it's going to be a while for me. Oh wow. Um but you know the hope is that um that states will everything seems to be going pretty smoothly and and that states will continue to do a good job of distributing and and um making sure that vaccine is available to people who really need it early on. And I, I will say, I, th I think that the good news is if you fall toward the back of the line, that means that you don't have super high risk through your job or, you know, through your um, medical history. So you should be thankful for that. I think one of the biggest things, talking points coming from the vaccines is a lot of people saying this is rushed. Um, I'm not going to take something that literally took less than a year to get to market. Um, and I know that's probably a sticking point with a lot of scientists. Here's what I can tell you what I've read. And I want you to tell me if this is accurate. 
we've heard a, a lot during the last eight months that, oh, any other vaccine took five to seven years to get to market. What I have heard is that most vaccines that we have heard that take five to seven years to be approved, um, and I don't, I think this is true, is that a lot of the reason it took forever is because, one, there was no emergency need for it. Two, it's a lot of, during those five or seven years, it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of sitting around, and nothing is actually happening. It's not like every single day for five or seven years they were doing everything they could to get that thing to market. And now we have something that, you know, happens in nine months. They're saying like, look, it took five to seven years and you don't realize that many years of that was sitting around doing nothing. It was just paperwork and the trials getting, you know, taking longer and them not having to um, kind of push the trials through quicker or not push them through quicker, but want to get results as quick as possible because it wasn't something that was in need. This is in need because we are a country that has been, you know, suffering majorly because of COVID. And so it was, look, we need to get on the ball. We need to get these trials done. And they're just happening at a quicker pace than a, another vaccine. So just because this took less than a year to get to market doesn't take away its effectiveness. And I think that's, something that I think you want to portray to people, I'm assuming? Absolutely. And and I, I'll say this is a good question. And so the, the people probably point to the mumps uh, vaccine most commonly. The, the fastest vaccine that we developed before this was four years for mumps. Um, and, and so this obviously has gone much faster. And I think you've outlined the reasons for that nicely. But there are kind of three key ones that, that we point people to if they're concerned. Okay. Um, You know, the first one is that scientists have been studying coronaviruses for over 50 years. So this this is a new coronavirus, but we know a lot about coronaviruses in general, which has really given us a good foundation um, to think about, you know, which vaccines will be most effective and safe. And there has been prior work that's focused on this spike protein specifically and concluded that it's a promising target for vaccines. So there's a really good head start on the science. Um, the second that, you know, probably I think most people would agree, one of the, the biggest um, sort of contributors is that there have been massive amounts of funds that have been dedicated to this. Given how disruptive this pandemic is, I think their funds well spent. Um, but what they've allowed companies to do is to run trials in parallel with manufacturing. And so um, because of the amount of funding available, some of these companies were able just to produce vaccine before they knew that it was effective and safe. And so obviously this is a huge risk and companies would normally not do this and they'd say, we're just going to wait. But in the setting of a global pandemic, um, this seems like an okay risk to take and it turns out that it has paid off. Um, And then, you know, the third is, I think what you've been mentioning, which is that there are a lot of steps involved and lots of, um, documentation and review involved in getting a new vaccine um, to people who, who might benefit. And um, that process has certainly been accelerated by um, really an unprecedented focus on, you know, making this, this happen, at, you know, safely, but also as quickly as possible. And so on the regulatory side, um, there have been hundreds of people who've been working, you know, all hours of the day and night trying to get through all of the necessary steps. So they haven't been skipping steps, but things have moved more quickly um, and they've, they've dedicated more people 
um, to their processes to make sure that this happens um, as soon as possible. So those are those are kind of the three things that we point to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like it's it makes a hell of a lot of sense that there's a reason just because the quickness of the vaccine is not taking away from the effectiveness of it. It just seems like it makes more sense because we've never had a global pandemic happen as as long as I've been alive. I mean, what, 1918 was the last one that we really had to concern ourselves with as a whole, as a country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is we're living through this to where it's like, yeah, we kind of need to dedicate as much money as possible and as opposed to something that didn't need to be pushed through quickly to get things back to normal. Um, as for the vaccine itself and in terms of what it does, I know a lot of people have general questions. I do. Um, one of them is if you've had COVID, do you need to get the vaccine? Why or why not? Yes, you do need to get the vaccine. So um, there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, the first is that, you know, from just straight out of the gate, we know that when we look at natural immunity, which we think of as immunity that comes from having just been naturally in- infected with uh, with SARS-CoV-2, um, natural immunity levels vary a ton from person to person. And they can also vary um, based on how severe your, your case was. Um, so, so just on that alone, there's there's not really a good way to say if you've tested positive in the past, we think that you're you know definitely protected for a year. I mean, there are lots of theories out there, but nothing definitive that's really been demonstrated yet. Um, and, and there has been some, you might remember this from the summer, um, some work that's come out that kind of freaked people out that demonstrated that immunity declines quite a bit um, after a few months. And, and then there was a lot of discussion on, you know, um, our antibodies, the, should antibodies be the focus when we talk about natural immunity and, and that that's really a discussion that's still ongoing. Um, but the, the short answer is immunity varies a ton after you've had COVID and there's certainly possibility of reinfection for some people. Um, the other thing that should be encouraging people is that the trial data that we have so far suggests that the vaccines um, that are currently available are both safe and effective in people who were previously infected. So obviously, you know, this is a small subset of everyone who is enrolled in the trial, but there seem to be no problems and um, certainly effectiveness in, in that subgroup of people. Um, the the uh, sort of public health authorities who have spoken on this um, have said that there's no minimum waiting period between infection and vaccination. Um, but they have said that if you've recently been diagnosed with COVID, um, it might be reasonable to wait 90 days until after you tested positive. And this is just because most of the evidence does point to some degree of immunity and you know, low rates of reinfection 90 days after your initial infection. So that would be more, um, I think, sort of an altruistic thing to say. Um, I'm likely protected. It's not guaranteed, but I probably have some degree of protection over the next couple of months. And there are other people who are um, more in need of the vaccine than, than I am right now. But but they haven't set a minimum amount of time that you need to wait. And here's kind of a simple question. I don't even know. Like just getting the vaccine as a normal human, me being a 45 year old guy, relatively healthy doesn't have any side effects to anything, me getting it whenever I get it seemingly means that once I get the vaccine, I can't contract it or pass it on? This 
this is my favorite question you've asked so far, Steve. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, actually, a ton of people are actively thinking about this and talking about this in the scientific community right now. Um, and the short answer is we don't know. Um, vaccines that we ha currently have available are incredibly effective at preventing severe infections, severe cases of COVID-19. We know that that's true. Um, unfortunately, the trials that looked at these vaccines because they were sort of focused on severe infection as their outcome, they did not look at the ability to prevent transmission. And so it's likely that the vaccines will help reduce transmission, um, but it's not certain. And so you may have seen the headlines. Um, the Pfizer CEO came out a couple of weeks ago and said that this is, um, you know, the, the ability to prevent infection or asymptomatic transmission um, is uncertain. Um, so we, we just don't know if, if, the, the vaccines that we currently have available can help with that. Um, but our best guess is that they can. Um, there is another vaccine in development, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, there was an interim analysis, analysis done on those data um, that pointed to a reduction in asymptomatic transmission, but um, it was just that. It was an interim analysis, so we'll have to wait for full analysis of those um, th those data to say for sure. So it's a, it's a good guess that it will probably help um, with transmission, but um, the most important thing is that it helps to prevent um, severe infection, which is um, you know really where the greatest impact has been for this. Yeah, and it seems like we're at a point now where I think once people, I mean, I've just had people in general hearing people talk, listening in on conversations, people say like, oh, well, once I get the vaccine, you know, no more masks, I'm, you know, I'm done. And that's just not, it's not the case because- what we're saying is you can get the vaccine and technically it is possible you can still contract the virus but be asymptomatic. So you not wearing your mask, you would just be spreading it on to people that you came in contact with at a close range for a good amount of time, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And that doesn't bode well for what we want to accomplish in all this, right? Like, that's the whole point. Like, it's not once you get the vaccine, all right, mask off, you're done, you're good. Like, no. It's not the way it works. So, right. So this is we're, we're this is really a population level problem. And so it requires a population level solution. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit just, you know, over over text about vaccine hesitancy and um, one approach that we're we're sort of recommending as, you know, public health um, professionals is to try to really um, frame this as an act of altruism and an act of helping society as a whole. I don't know how well that's going to resonate with people, but um, certainly, you know, vaccine is just one additional step that can bring transmission to a low enough level that we can get a handle on this thing. Um, it's not going to be, you know, we will still have some other tools that we need to keep in the toolbox and use like masks for a while. Um, until we were able to vaccinate a sufficient number of people. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, so it's important that it's, it's certainly not um, an immediate solution where we can go out tomorrow after we're vaccinated and um, be fine and not worry about transmission or infection. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be one day where all of a sudden it's announced either by the president or even on an all-state level, like, all right, everyone, take your masks off. We're good. Like, <laughs> it's not going to – it's going to be a slow rollout. It's going to be another state-by-state -state thing of some states will be looser about mask wearing and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, in in your estimation, I, I, you probably don't, there's not. I know you don't have a, a definite answer, but based on what I'm reading and what sci, what I'm reading, what scientists are saying and talking about, you know, big thing for me, obviously, sporting events, when it will be safe to fill stadiums and arenas, and when it is, are masks still going to be required there? Because my guess is. I think by September, this is just me, based on what I've read and whatever, I think when football season starts next season, the 2021 season, that by September, I think that stadiums will be able to be filled again, but I also think they're going to make people wear masks. What do you think? You must be listening to Dr. Fauci, because that's exactly what he's saying. Oh, he did? I, actually, I didn't hear <laughs> well, that. I, I listen to Fauci all the time, but that one I didn't hear. That was just stuff yeah, I read. I, so this this is uh, maybe a, a little outdated, it might be a week or two old, but it was a, another interview he did where someone asked him this question. He said, you know, sporting events with, with fans are going to be the last things that we're, we see um, in 2021. And so I, I don't, I forget who was interviewing him, but um, they sort of pressed him on this and they said, okay, you know, basketball or football. And he said, basketball, I don't know about that, but football is a, you know, a reasonably good bet. Um, so yeah, I, I think the the key is that mass and distancing are going to be important until at least next fall. And this is because there's just not enough supply to get everyone vaccinated before then. Um, and, you know, as we talked about, there is this tiered system where, you know, we're focusing on healthcare workers, essential workers, um, high risk first, and then sort of moving down the line. Um, the good thing is, as more and more people are vaccinated, um, there are fewer people who are susceptible. And so we're less likely to encounter someone who's sick just by, you know, going out into the world. Um, obviously, the more people who are vaccinated, the the less risky that is. But we're still a ways off from vaccination being at um, a high enough level where we don't have to worry at all. And so, like, for, for you and me, members of the sort of general public, um, what we our sort of best guess is that it's going to be April, May, June, and sort of into the summer for those of us who are sort of at the end of the line. Um, if if everything goes according to plan, that there are no major hiccups in production distribution. Um, so you know, fall fall football I think is a reasonably good guess, and um, mask wearing. Yeah, we'll we'll see where we are. I mean, a lot of this depends on how many people choose to be vaccinated. Um, if our records show that it's, you know, 95% of the population, maybe masks are not necessary. Um, if it's 70%, it, you know, might be more important to use some of our other tools to prevent infection. Yeah. I mean, that was my next question. Is the goal herd immunity here? And what is the percentage of U.S. citizens where I think scientists say they'll feel safe? Is it is it 70%? Is it higher or lower? I mean, obviously they want as many as possible, but that's just not realistic. There's just people out there that are going to refuse to get this for whatever reasons, like I said, religious, uh, health-wise, uh, political, they're just not going to take it. So is that number, I don't like, I've been talking about this over the last few months with my friends. I'm like, I don't even know what percentage of the current public, uh, the 330 million people in the United States, I don't even know what the percentage is of people that are unvaccinated. Do you know what the, uh, that just don't have any vaccinations and are just, I guess, anti-vaxxers? What is the percentage? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that the Kaiser Family Foundation did a, a recent poll on this vaccine specifically, and 15% of people in that poll said, I will definitely not get this vaccine. Okay. 
Um, and so, so are scientists know, looking way, at what would be a good herd immunity that they think is 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 enough to where it's like okay, we feel good. Is I, I my my guess is seventy to seventy five percent is what they're is what they're aiming for. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen I've seen estimates as low as seventy percent and as high as eighty five percent. So I I think probably seventy five to eighty percent would be a good target. Um, and I, I think we're really fortunate that the vaccines that we have available now are as effective as they are, because as you probably know, herd immunity is a direct result of both vaccine effectiveness and the percent of people who are vaccinated. So with a less effective vaccine, we would need more people to say, yes, I'm willing to be vaccinated. So it's it's a good thing that, um, you know, we have such effective vaccines available. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, we, every country has to make the determinations of who who should be first in line. And so um, in the United States, I, I think they've they've done this correctly. They're they're focusing on the people who are higher risk because, um, you know, those are the people who are more likely to need a hospital bed. And certainly we're trying to prevent deaths from covid. Um, and so if we start with those people um, and and add healthcare workers to the mix. Um, some estimates say that we could have prevented two thirds of the deaths that we've seen so far. And so clearly, it makes a lot of sense to try to sort of stop the bleeding by um, addressing the highest risk people first. Um, that's not going to get us, you know, super far um, along the path to herd immunity, but it will certainly reduce, you know, the impact of um, severe disease and reduce mortality rates as we go, which I think we can all agree is a, an important early goal. I, I want to ask your opinion on this, and I don't think you have any sort of definitive answer, but I'm, I'm curious what you think about once we get to this point of 70 to 75, 75, 80 percent of people in this country vaccinated with this vaccine. Um, are the people who choose to not get the vaccine, are they going to be excluded from things? Are they going to be allowed to attend events or even fly domestically? Or as long as it's a small enough percentage, I don't know, just let them infect each other because that's because you're just never going to get everybody in the U.S., as we said, to get this vaccination. But what about the people once the majority of the people, whatever that number ends up being, what happens to those who just refuse to get vaccinated? Are they just, hey, you're out on your own. It's your decision. Just, in, you know, if you get it, that's that's on you. We have a vaccine that really strongly prevents you from getting majorly sick or possibly dying from this. And you're choosing not to get it. So you're on your own. Like what happens to that segment of the population? I think it's anybody's guess at this point for private businesses, um, you know, who knows, who knows what they'll require. Um, I will say, I, I think it's, it's going to be some time before any mandates can really be in place just because there's not enough supply for everyone to get vaccinated right now. And so it's, it would be strange to have a mandate when people don't even really have the opportunity to get vaccinated, even if they want to be. Um, so it'll, it'll be some time before we see any mandates. Um, this has kind of been an active discussion um, specifically related to air travel recently. I don't know if you know who Alan Joyce is. Um, I, I only know who he is because of uh, reading about COVID-related stuff. But he's um, CEO of um, Qantas Airline, I guess, which is the big Australian airline. Um, yeah. He came out a couple of weeks ago and said, 
proof of vaccination will likely be required for international flights in the future and said the discussions that he's been having with heads of major U.S. airlines um, indicate to him that they will almost certainly have the same rules in place. And then Mm. a bunch of people came out and said, uh, you know, not so fast. We haven't made any decisions yet. Um, And so I I think it's um, it's still an active area of discussion and um, it's good that they have some time to figure this out. It's certainly, you know, complex decision. Um, but because not everyone has access to vaccine, um, it's unlikely that anything, you know, definitive will come out in terms of mandates um, for airlines in, in the near future. Um, some some have said sort of in response to this, I was reading that, you know, some of the heads of airlines have said it might be a decision between testing and vaccinations. You might have to, you know, show that you're um, negative and or quarantine or you can show proof of vaccination. My guess is that's probably what it will end up looking like, um, but mm-hmm. I don't know for sure. So I think I think air travel is going to be an important one. The other thing is schools. Um, Schools, of course, have uh, state level requirements um, that are enforced for vaccination right now. Uh, my guess is COVID vaccines will be a part of that. I just am not sure what that will end up looking like. And it'll be, I'm sure, a really contentious uh, topic as we go. But I think it'll be a while before we see any mandates. Okay. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I thought of when you were just talking recently about COVID and infecting and people who aren't infected and stuff like that. How much closer are we to, Hey, you have COVID. Here's what you can take to combat COVID to where it doesn't, because right now, anybody that's gotten COVID over the last six months, it's just like, well, we have nothing for you. It's just, you have to fight it out and you have to just basically cross your fingers that you are not one of the people that gets it bad. Cause we've heard people who have gotten COVID that have zero symptoms. We've heard mild symptoms. We've heard, sense of, you know, you lose your taste and your smell. And then obviously the worst, uh, you know, you're dying from it. Um, There's really been no rhyme or reason, I don't think, in any studies as to why some people get it worse than others. But are we any closer to getting something to take if we were to contract COVID? Well, we've had a few failures in this space. Bleach? Uh, Bleach Bleach failed us? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, the bleach trial didn't work out the way we wanted. Um, it still might happen. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Sunlight, whatever it was. <laughs> for the record, don't take bleach, please. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also, you know, the, as with as with any other field, there are um, incentives in science. And so now that we do have the vaccine, I'm not sure how much active interest there is going to be in um trying to find an, an effective ther- therapy to make the course easier for people who have mild infection. Um, my mm. guess is that it, it's going to be the same um, sort of recommendation in terms of rest and hydration and, um, you know, m- monitoring. I mean, it, there's been some, some interest in like oxygen monitoring to make sure that people aren't, um, you know, dealing with too many um, severe uh, oxygen issues before they go to the hospital. But the, I, I my sense is that the focus is going to be more on trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So we don't have to worry about treating and we can focus more on prevention. Um, I mean, there's been, you know, good progress in the, the severe, um, the severe space um, in terms of things like benefit of proning, 
um, dexamethasone, et cetera. But um, I, yeah, I, I think it's as with as with anything else, the incentive to really focus on um, people who are infected has probably declined now that we have something that can effectively prevent infection from happening in the first place. Well, I feel like you and I could talk about this vaccine forever. Um, I, 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 I tried to get out as many questions that I think the average person has about these things like, you know, Moderna versus Pfizer, um, the quickness of it being developed versus the effectiveness of it. Um, if you had COVID, do you need to get it, the vaccine? Um, once you get it, what does it mean? What does it mean for masks? Um, I think we've covered it all. I mean, there's probably a few things here that I left out. I apologize for anybody that maybe had some questions that didn't get answered. But I think we covered the main ones that I keep seeing coming up in the media and keep seeing coming up in conversation, just overhearing stuff or in talking with friends. So um, before we wrap things up, I do want to say, Emily, you last time we had John was April and you were about a month away from delivering your second child. And uh, so you had your second baby. You had a boy, Henry, in, in May. How has that been going? And I'm assuming when you delivered, you had a mask on the whole time. You were one of the people that during COVID had to deliver a baby. So you had to be in a mask, right? Yeah. So I was wearing a mask uh, until the end. They had a rapid test that they administered. And um, when it turned out that that was negative, they allowed me to take it off. But my labor was really quick. So um, it was actually a mother's day. And so I had, um, I was nine months pregnant, sent my husband out for donuts. He brought donuts back. I ate one and then promptly went into labor. So, um, it was, it was sort of a, an interesting day. We drove right to the hospital. Um, and within three hours I had a new child. So it was, it was a little bit sad since it was just, it was just my husband. We could only have one person who we brought in. Um, but the, you know, the team was fantastic and it went super smoothly and, um, was just really grateful to, um, be able to deliver a healthy baby. And, um, and the, one of the nice things is as anyone who's given birth knows, um, you're really closely monitored for the first couple of days after you deliver and people are always coming in to either check on your baby or check your blood pressure, make sure everything's fine. Um, and this kind of means that you don't really get a lot of sleep in the hospital. And because of COVID, I think they were very eager to um, limit the amount of people who stayed for more than they needed to. And so I was able to go home after a day, uh, which was really nice. Um, so no complaints. Um, and my child is like the happiest, most positive, friendly baby ever. I have no idea where he got that, um, but he's extremely, <laughs> extremely sweet. Um, and we're having a good time with him. So, wow. So you got, so you literally went into labor, you delivered three hours after you got to the hospital and you were home the next day. Yes. Wow. How, yes. how was that compared to your first one to Ned? Uh, it was a million times better. My first one, I, uh, you know, I, I tend to be kind of an anxious person anyways. And there were a lot of unknowns going into childbirth. So I think I just like made it a lot worse for myself. And it was 27 hours of labor and, it, you know, it, it was just not that fun. But oh, wow. second time, way better. Oh, well, congratulations. Um, yeah. So Ned is going to be three in March. And um, yes. so and Henry is what, seven, eight seven months, months, seven months now. Yeah. Yes. You guys do Elf on the Shelf? We haven't done that yet. We're, we're, um, you know, we're limiting. So our, our tradition so far has to buy shatterproof 
uh, has been to buy shatterproof ornaments and let him like Ned like hang them and then take them down and hang them again. So oh. that's how we spend most of our time. Okay, next year, Elf on the Shelf. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to regret that. I think. Actually. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm just, you know, I see, I see people on the internet that do it, and um, we did it with my niece and nephew. My my sister wasn't the greatest at remembering every single day to move the elf, and the kids noticed, yeah, like, sounds- you know, it's like kids notice, like, wait, that's where they were yesterday. Did they not move? And then you have to come up with some bullshit answer um, <laughs> as to why they didn't move overnight. Uh, but okay, yeah, but maybe, maybe we won't do this actually now that you've described it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how perceptive <laughs> Ned is. If he would be able to pick that up that they didn't move overnight. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. we, we like to keep him in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Emily, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I had so many people ask about you recently, if I was going to have you back on and I knew I wanted to, and I know that your schedule is busy and it's, you know, holiday week. Christmas is three days away, so I really appreciate you coming on and doing this and uh, making the time for me. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always fun to catch up. And, uh, you know, when we maybe we get into next summer and we're a little more into it and we've all gotten our vaccines or most of us have gotten our vaccines, you and I can ha- bring you on again and we talk about us getting vaccinated and what it means because maybe six months from now we'll have something new that we'll have to discuss in terms of, okay, where do we go from here? Um, so... Yeah, I will always have you in the on the front of my mind when it comes to diseases and infectious diseases. You're 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 my go-to girl. So there you go. I know you're really just worried about when sports are going to come back. So I know. That's, I know. That's, that's the thing I'll try to keep an eye on. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with them. What I mean, I'm fine with watching them. But yeah, I am. You know, as a season ticket holder to the Dallas Mavericks, and you know, a partial season ticket holder to the Dallas Stars. Kind of want to know when I'm getting back. And actually, the funny thing is, this week I was emailed by the Mavericks saying, you know, NBA season starts tonight, but the Mavericks have chosen to not have any fans for the foreseeable future, at least as the season starts tonight. There's only six teams out of 30 in the NBA that are even having fans, and I think they're all at 25%. But the Dallas Stars sent an email out saying, who in the Dallas Stars play in the same arena as the Mavericks, the Dallas Stars have, are saying, um, in our season, 56 game season, so 28 home games, we're going to have 25% uh, capacity. So it is interesting. interesting. Like two teams playing in the same arena, one's choosing not to have fans and one is. And not even in the same, you know, different cities or states, same arena. And uh, they're choosing to do things differently. Interesting. I, that sounds like a good natural experiment. Maybe we should collect some data. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would think that would be very helpful. I, I also think hockey needs it more so than the NBA because the NBA has a lot of hefty TV contracts where they're making a ton of money. Whereas hockey really depends a lot on their uh, attendance and concessions and buying gear at the store. They almost have to stay open after canceling pretty much, you know, fan, no fans for the end of, of last season. So, but yeah, it is interesting. Um, so I'm, excited to get out to a stars game I don't know well I yeah i mean game. send send mark cuban a note and ask yeah. him if we can collect some data and then we'll go from there yeah i'm sure he will be uh, i mean he's he's at the forefront of a lot of this stuff so i'm sure he will collect data and <laughs> make sure about that stuff so anyway um again emily thank you so much have a great christmas and uh hope all is well with you all right thanks so much steve you got it bye bye Thank you so much to Emily for that. Love having her on. Um, if you didn't hear her podcast back in April, I'd go check that out. 
it might be a little outdated now because we know so much more about the virus. But if you want to know what she was saying about it back then, uh, go check that out. I believe it was April 16th. Could be mistaken. I know it was the week before I had Kat on for the first time. And Kat was April 23rd. So, or maybe she was the week. It was the week before or week after Kat. I think it was the week before. But anyway, check that out if you'd like to. But uh, I, she really knows her stuff. I hope I covered everything, uh, or at least most things that people, the questions that people have. The lay person who has questions about uh, the virus and uh, the vaccine that is now on the market. So, Thanks to Emily for that. Thank you all uh, for a great season. Um, As I wrote in yesterday's column or today's column, depending on when you're listening to this, you know, uh, with, with the seasons being filmed now in one location, it is definitely much more difficult to get you an episode by episode breakdown. It's just not going to happen. I'm getting information sporadically here and there. And then even when I do get it, I need to get it doubly confirmed or feel comfortable enough running with it. There were so many things this season that like, you know, with the season that I was told that I ran with, but then, you know, you find stuff out as the season goes along. It was just a crazy season. That's why I said it was messy at the, at the beginning. It was just, to me, it was messy, you know, Bennett leaving Bennett coming back and getting to get to go to a rose ceremony only to be eliminated. Ben getting to the final four, getting eliminated, then coming back at final three, and then getting to the final two. Like, that's why I said the season was messy, is what I heard. Oh, and then the the Brendan stuff. Brendan's self-eliminating and knowing that Taysha was really into him. So that was the reason I said it was messy. Um, Nothing more than that. And, you know, people run with the word messy, and they're like, oh, my God, you hate Taysha. And it's just like, guys, just... Lord, like you just can't win. And um, yeah, it's frustrating. But for those that do just enjoy the spoilers and can can will take anything they give them. I appreciate it. Been a fun season and um, frustrating at times, but fun. And we're back at it in two weeks. And hopefully I'll have some information for you on Matt's season coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. So thank you all for listening uh, to these podcasts. Please rate, subscribe and review. Uh, in Apple Podcasts, it is it is very much appreciated. Happy holidays to everybody, whatever you may celebrate. Um, have a great weekend, and uh, we're back again next week. We're going to have uh, Game of Roses podcast host Lizzie Pace and Bachelor Clues are going to be on the podcast next week right here on, so what would it be, Jan- December 30th, I believe? Uh, 31st is next Thursday? What's the What's the date next Thursday? It is, yeah, 31st. It'll be the Game of Roses uh, podcast hosts, Lizzie Pace and Bachelor Clues. So, until then, uh, for Emily O'Brien, I'm Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week. See ya!